Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from, and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metal Works, your metal roofing headquarters. And also buy Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. I'm your host, Joe Bay, here today with my co-host, Butch Theory and Clint Flowers. And guys, today we're going to be talking about how to avoid capital gains tax on a land sale. There's a lot to this, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the show and asking some specific questions because I don't know about you guys. I don't I don't really like paying taxes if I don't have to. Uh, I'd rather keep that money as much as I can. Certainly rather pay as little amount of tax as possible. Yeah, no doubt. Butch, have, have you had to pay capital gains tax up at this point? I have never had to deal with a 1031. I have had to pay capital gains taxes before, correct? Yeah, so... Uh, yep, I'm excited to learn more about it, man. I think these guys are uh, doing, some, doing some research on their website and kind of doing this outline, and it's, uh, it's a lot to it, man. It's a, it's a very multi, uh, multifaceted uh, situation. Clint, I know you, you've dealt with 1031 exchanges a lot, but you yourself, have you had to pay capital gains tax on, on a property you sold? Uh, I have on some partnership deals that we've come out of where it was just kind of the election of the group. But any other time that I've ever been able to utilize a 1031 exchange, I've done it for 20 years. And uh, first piece of land I ever bought was 10 acres. And I've grown that more and more and more over several decades to four digits now. So it's 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 a tool that I not only use personally, but our clients, we utilize on, I'd say, probably 50 plus percent of the deals we do. Yeah. It's a very important tool to understand. We're going to get into that today. Hopefully ask every question that you might have. And uh, today we're going to learn how to save some money. And to do that today, answering all of our questions, we're talking to Jonathan Barge and Max Hansen of Accruit. Guys, welcome to Huntland. First off, tell us a little bit more about Accruit and your roles there. Jonathan, we'll start with you. Oh uh, Yeah, thanks, Joe and uh, Clint and Bush and everybody for having us on today. We're very glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. So a little bit about Accruit. Accruit is a full-service qualified intermediary. So we offer board exchanges, reverse exchanges, construction, and uh, specialty non-safe harbor parking arrangements. Um, you know, we've got a really uh, knowledgeable staff and a pretty broad bench. We've got five staff attorneys, uh, in which Max Hansen and I are uh, each on that group. Um, a little bit about me is that about 20 years in public service, background in uh, military, law enforcement for a little bit, spent some time in the desert when I was in the military. 
then uh, got into law enforcement as a criminal investigator. Did a lot of uh, high-end crimes, financial stuff, and and, and uh, violent crimes. And I was on a SWAT team for a considerable amount of time. So uh, kind of figured that wasn't enough challenge, and decided I'd go off to law school. And I completed that and wanted to get into real estate transactional work. It landed me with a crew. So I'm really glad to be here. Really uh, glad that I could bring in my colleague Max Hansen here, who had some color and expertise alongside me uh, to this podcast. So we can have, add some value to your listeners. Jonathan, I can uh, I can tell you're an attorney. I'm 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 allowed to say this because my brother is one, and you know you just said a whole bunch of words that Butch doesn't even know what any of them mean. We're going to get into that <laughs> uh, here in a little bit. You're going to have to do some definitions. Uh, but before we do that, Max, let's let's hear your background. Thanks again to you guys too. Uh, echo what Jonathan said. I've been an attorney for. A long time. Uh, I did my first exchange back in 1978. That dates me. Okay. I started out as a, an attorney in southwestern Montana, where I was born and raised. And I'd just come back from law school at the University of San Diego and work for another firm there. And that's when I did my first exchange transaction. I did a number of those as a transactional real estate attorney, where I was representing people that were doing their exchanges. And we were using qualified intermediaries from California, which is about the only place you could find them because it was a real, really a new industry. Uh, I started my own exchange company, American Equity Exchange in 1991 and continued doing exchanges at a qualified intermediary company. And I had met Brent Abram, who is the CEO of Accruit back in 2000. And uh, we began working together on lobbying issues with regard to 1031 on Capitol Hill. We're both involved with the Federation of Exchange Accommodators over that long period of time. We've both been uh, past presidents of that organization. And uh, in 2017, when Congress repealed Section 1031 with regard to personal property exchanges, it became apparent that it would be a good time for us to join forces and accrue it acquired my company. And um, July 16th, 2018, I became an employee of Accruit, and they uh, brought three other of my employees over with me. And I've been with them ever since as a managing director. Accruit, you know, has been around in the exchange industry for a, for an obviously a long time. It focused on personal property exchanges, obviously, but began doing more and more real property exchanges. And we began to shift into high gear about, oh, 2015, 2013 with regard to real property exchanges. And we do exchanges all over the United States and its territories. We also do exchanges in foreign countries because we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, taxpayers can do foreign property exchanges too. But that's kind of what uh, my background is and uh, happy to answer any other questions you've got. Hopefully we can get some information out there for your listeners. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have a lot of them. Today's focus really is on what a 1031 exchange can do for a landowner who's planning to sell their land. Uh, We deal with that day in and day out. A lot of folks are still, even though they've been around for a while, unaware of what a 1031 exchange is and how it can benefit them as they move out of one property and into another property. So let's start there. For maybe the folks that are unacquainted with a 1031 exchange, what is it? Jonathan, you want to take a stab? Yeah, Joe, I'll go ahead and take that one. So a 1031 exchange, it's it's set out there in the uh, uh, code itself. It's in section 1031. You hear the 1031 exchange rule. That's actually the the revenue code. And so, you know, when you really unpack the regulations uh, in 1031, subsection A, subsection 1, it talks about no gain or loss shall be recognized on the exchange of real property held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment if the real property is exchanged for other real property of like kind 
which is to be held for productive use in the trade or business or for investment. So when you really look at what that code says and you start unpacking it, and that's kind of what I wanted to do when I talk about what a 1031 exchange is, because you heard the uh, term there uh, multiple times, this held for, and you also heard productive use in a trade or business or for investment. There's also like kind. So there's three different prongs there that really uh, tee up what a 1031 exchange is. I'll take uh, one of them, each one of them at a, at a time here and say that you've got this held for uh, concept. So that the taxpayer is holding this relinquished property for the couple of years prior to the exchange and they, their intent for how they've held that property has met with the qualified use requirement, meaning that you know, they've used it in, for productive use in a business or trade or for investment. You know, it's generating rental income, it's farm or ranch land, it's vacant land for the appreciation value. There's a lot of different types of properties. It's essentially, you know, just ruling out the fact that you're not trying to exchange your principal residence. And then you've got this concept where, you know, like kind is built into the code. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later too, but it just keeps um, resurfacing itself in this conversation. But like kind is all about, you know, you're, you're exchanging one asset for another asset of like kind. What, what does that mean? You know, does that mean that it has to be, you know, the same vacant land for vacant land? No, it doesn't. It's all about the use of the property and it, and it tees right back to this concept of the qualified use, meaning that, hey, you're going to use it for the same purposes. You're going to use the new property in the same way that you use the old property, meaning that you're going you're gonna to employ it in a, in a business use or, or, or for investment purposes. And so that's, you know, the IRS has set out this, this code, we've got the regulations, and this is where we live all day when we're advising clients. And so we unpack all those words when we're, when we're assessing a deal that's coming in, making sure that it tees up with the regulations and really making sure that, that all the parameters are fit in there. And when you hear that code, you also see, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, from the transactional side, um, the listeners here too, when they look at a cooperation clause that's built into a real estate purchase and sale agreement, you've got, you've got this language in there about, you know, the 1031. And so I always like to say that the, you know, the brokers and agents, they're really the boots on the ground when it comes to assessing whether or not that this property that they're about to list or that they're engaging a client with them is a, is a property that's eligible for a 1031 exchange. And so then, you know, if you, if you got that on your radar and that's something that is exchange eligible and, you know, your wheels start shifting as far as your layer of analysis there and, and trying to see, what the intent of the uh, client is and whether they want to defer their taxes on that sale. So that, that's kind of what a 1031 exchange is in a nutshell. Jonathan, just to, to put thing, things in a little bit broader context, it might be helpful for taxpayers to know that even though there's a lot of taxpayers that don't, and, and advisors for that matter, that don't know that much about 1031, 1031's been a part of the tax code since 1921. This isn't a new loophole or something that just somebody mm-hmm. invented, okay? The reason that 1031 was put in, in, in the tax code in the first place is because it, it was part of a whole series of code sections that allow for people to have non-taxable events when they dis- disposed of assets. And you know you have section 1031, which is real property exchanges. You had 1033, which is involuntary conversions when the government comes and takes your property or eminent domain proceedings. You had 1035, which is rollovers of you know insurance policies. You had uh, 1034, which was the old provision on rollover of a personal residence. But the whole theory was is that if a taxpayer ends up selling a property or or swapping property with another owner, with another real property owner, 
And that's what you used to see back in the old days. There was a barter system back in the 20s and 30s when times were tough, you know, people traded stuff. But the thought was is there that when they're trading real property, there shouldn't be a taxable event because they didn't, number one, they didn't have any money changing hands to pay the tax with, okay? Right. But the whole idea was that if people kept exchanging out of property and into new property and kept that asset in the stream of commerce, it, it basically improved the economy. And if you look back at the old committee notes and stuff, when that code section was implemented as part of the code, you'll see that whole uh, philosophy uh, was kind of ingrained in it. And we still see the same thing today. So in a typical exchange transaction, a taxpayer you know, sells a property, employs a qualified intermediary to hold the money when that property sale closes. And then the QI company or the qualified intermediary company has that money available. The taxpayer goes out and we'll talk about identification of replacement property, closes on the acquisition of the replacement property. The qualified intermediary uses the money to acquire the replacement property so when the dust settles on this transaction, the taxpayers just swap property A for property B, and they never had the money. That's why the 1031 exchange works. And that's essentially what we're talking about in this transaction. That's an interesting background. And you hear this term a, a little bit more now than maybe what you used to hear. But it's it's really cool to hear that this has been going on for 100 years, pretty much. And it's really not new. But again, a lot of folks are still unacquainted with it. So Break down for me the real advantage. You know, you you talked about being able to swap and and that makes sense. And in those events where there was no money change in hands, but for folks where there is money change in hands, what's the advantage over say just taking that money, settling down, waiting until they find the exact right property and not using a 1031 exchange? Right. That's a great question, Joe. And so the advantage is is that you're gonna end up, you know, say you meet all the the prongs of those regulations as we discussed earlier is that you're going to end up uh, being able to defer four levels of taxation. So you'll have tax on depreciation recapture, which is generally about 25%. You'll have federal capital gains taxed anywhere between 15 to 20%, and state income taxes varying up to, to the point where it's 13.3% in some states. And then if it, if it applies, you're going to have the uh, net investment income tax as well, which is an additional 3.8%. So when you really look at it, what we're trying to do here is say, okay, you've got all these layers of tax that are going to be bundled up because they're going to be implicated in this sale if it's not exchanged. So if the property is not run through a 1031 exchange, that's what you're looking at as a you know a taxable event, the, that calculation there. So what our goal is, is like, you know, we're trying to simplify this as much as possible. So we start by determining what the capital gain tax exposure is for the client and then kind of run a cost benefit analysis on the exchange. We look at the ownership timeline and the taxpayer status. You know, who's the seller here? Is it an LLC? Is it a partnership? Is it an individual? How long have they owned it? What's their intent then with the property? And then we run through the numbers and say, okay, well, what's your basis in the property that you're selling? And, you know, the, for purposes here, the basis is the purchase price plus any capital improvements, and then subtract out the depreciation taken over time. So then once we have the basis, we look to the sale selling price of the property, the relinquished property. And that difference between the basis and the sales price is going to be you know, a rough estimate of what your capital gains exposure is. And then we run that uh, those percentages mentioned earlier, you know, based on generally to the CPA will have some information for us and they might know as well what their, what their tax brackets are. But we kind of get a good economic sense of what is it going to be, look like if you exchange and what is it going to look like if you don't? 
what are your cap what's your capital gains exposure and then we work through the whole concept of well okay here's where we're at this is what it's going to save you and we we look at the replacement property strategy and say if you do want to defer the taxes then let's talk about exchanging you equal or up in value and how you have to replace the equity and the debt and and the different you know economics that fall into play here so on the financial side you know the advantage of a 1031 tax deferred exchange is pure economics and you're deferring that taxable event to a later date and you're reinvesting it in new property and so that's kind of an overarching assessment of of the way we look at it and make sure that it pencils out but you know our our whole goal is simplifying it and making sure that this is a viable exchange and it makes good financial sense for the taxpayer one other thing i just add and that is the fact that obviously the the big ticket item is the tax deferral and you're not going to be in a situation you're hopefully avoiding a situation where and we see this a lot sometimes taxpayers will end up selling a property they'll end up paying the tax and then they'll find this replacement property that they really want to buy but what's what's happened is this basically this investment that they've continued to increase this investment portfolio which is their real property you know, has continued to appreciate in value, then they end up spending a chunk of money paying taxes on it and turn right around and buy more real mm-hmm. property. Why not take the entire value of the portfolio and just roll it over into more real property? Now, they're going to end up having a taxable event at some point in time. And most most usually they do. A lot of people think, well, you know, they're going to just continue to do exchanges until they pass away and they pass it on to theirs and successors. And it gets a step up in basis to fair market value at the time of their death. And then there's conceivably no tax to the to the heirs or successors because they could sell the property and not have any capital gain tax to pay. But the empirical data is that a lot of times and in a substantial amount of the time, people do end up cashing out. They pay the tax. And um, I guess the other thing is there's other advantages too, aside from that tax deferral advantage. And that is a lot of times people will find themselves in a property that's a business use property and it is, you know, they've outgrown it. They need to get into a bigger facility. They have the opportunity to do that with an exchange. They can sell the old facility, acquire a new facility. A lot of times it involves a construction to suit or build a suit adjunct to it. We'll end up using exchange funds to acquire the real property, but also to add value to that property with the newer facility. We do those all over the country. Another thing too is that, you know, location, location, location. You know, sometimes uh, a business property that somebody owns, you know, it's it's now in a Basically, the the place that they live and work, you know, has evolved, and and they need to get into a better location. This is a great opportunity for them to do that and not end up having to pay the tax to do it. Okay, uh, farms and ranches, other ag ag sector type uh, properties, you know, the same thing applies. We see opportunities for people to do exchanges into sell one prop, piece of property, maybe is not very productive, or it's a it's a it's a target for developers. But they have the ability to take the funds from that sale and use it to acquire another productive piece of property that basically enhances their their total operation. Another thing, and Jonathan brushed on this initially, as far as the definition of like kind. Like kind is really any property that you don't intend to use as your personal residence for two years or property that you're just going to flip. You're going to buy a piece of property in an exchange, acquire a piece of property in exchange, and then put 10,000 bucks in a new paint job and a new roof or whatever, and then flip it right away. Those properties don't qualify, but you can exchange out of any type of property and into any kind of property, as long as it's not personal residential use or it's going to be a flip type property. Well, that means that if somebody ends up 
selling, and you see this a lot in the, in the Southeast, we see it a lot out in the West, conservation easement sales. You know, there's a lot of conservation entities out there now that are coming in with, with hard money to buy up the, the development rights, essentially, on a piece of property to keep a landowner, you know, a landowner agrees not to develop their property further, and they get paid for doing that, okay, or not doing that. So a taxpayer can take money from the sale of a conservation easement and use it to acquire more property. A lot of times they're doing it to block up uh, their op- their ag operation, but a lot of times for the first time in their in maybe multiple generations of owners in that family, they're acquiring maybe a, a single family residential rental someplace or a multifamily residential storage units, whatever, you know, that's providing an income stream to that business operation of theirs. And it's an outside business stream that they've never had the opportunity to avail themselves of in the past, which is really cool, especially when you see some of the older older generation farmers and ranchers and other ag sector businesses that don't have the next generation coming up through the ranks that are willing to work 24-7, 365 a year. Man, what an opportunity. They've got the ability to, to basically diversify the income producing properties that they do have. And they're not just confined to one sector of the economy. You know, we see a lot of things where people are selling paleontological or archaeological rights. Mm-hmm. The right for a company is coming in mind for dinosaur bones on a ranch someplace, you know, <laughs> and they take that money and use it because that is a real property interest. It's cool. So we're going to, have to tell me about that one on another day, but on a conventional sale, we've got something under contract. We know we want to try to find something else. I mean, what's kind of the standard process? As far as how long we have, you know, the, the steps we have to take within that, what happens at closing or before closing, uh, and what kind of timeline do we have to, to get this done on? Yeah, Clint. So the timeline is, is uh, what generally, you know, it's all set out in the regs and it's, it's very uh, strict. Um, sometimes, you know, that, that concerns folks, but in all honesty, you know, when you engage a qualified intermediary like a Cruet, we're going to be uh, your eyes and ears and making sure that you're you're in compliance with all of those deadlines. So for each step in the process, so we look at 180 days is what you have total. And that starts on closing day. So that's closing day, day zero. That's on the relinquished property, the property you're liquidating. So prior to that, what ends up happening, you know, structurally speaking, is that you're going to engage a QI who comes in and supplies you with an exchange agreement and it's going to take an assignment of that real estate uh, purchase and sale agreement or that land purchase and sale contract, whatever it may be, commercial property. You're going to step into the shoes of the, the taxpayer that's selling this property. And then we're going to coordinate with the title company and they're going to receive those exchange funds into a segregated account. And we're going to hold those exchange funds and then use them to apply to the replacement property assets. And uh, so like Max was saying earlier, that's why it's a non-taxable event because QI isn't holding, holding your funds. But closing days, day zero, 180-day countdown from there. The first 45 days is your identification window. And the remaining 135 days after the first 45 is the closing period. Under the uh, 45 days, you have uh, different identification rules that uh, folks use. And generally, we recommend uh, two. There are three total rules, but uh, two are the uh, most commonly used. It's either the three property rule or the 200% rule. And um, generally speaking, those are used by clients given what their exchange value is. So on a lower value exchange, you'd probably want to use the three property rule because the three property rule says, hey, you can identify any three properties out there and there's no limitation of value of what you're, what you're identifying. So that really helps on a, on a lower value exchange. 
on a higher value exchange, when you're talking five million, three and a half million, something like that or greater, you can uh, rely on the 200% rule, which says, hey, you can certainly break the three property and identify four, five, six. Uh, the only limitation is that you, the aggregate fair market value of the properties you're identifying can't exceed 2x of what you sold for. So that, that's why the high value exchange like that, it really makes a lot of sense. So $3.5 million that you sold for, $7 million would be your 200% limitation. So the fair market value of what you're identifying couldn't exceed uh, that $7 million limitation. So when you look at it and say, I can identify five, six, seven properties, they're going to be seven $1 million properties, and you're still within the within the confines of the, the regs there. So, you know, uh, at Accruit, we work closely with the taxpayers to ensure these deadlines are met and complied with. And we have uh, software, proprietary software, which is licensed by many other QIs in the industry. It tracks all these dates and sends real-time notifications to the taxpayer. Because, yeah, it is, it is a tight timeline. And uh, the IRS is, is not forgiving if you, if you break um, one of the rules. And the 45 days runs from day zero to day 45. No holidays or weekends implicated. So it's midnight of day 45. Um, but that kind of gives you a breakdown of the timeline. And that's why it's important to engage a, a QI early. You can get a sense of what your placement property strategy is. And if uh, you've got a quality buyer on the line on the relinquished property, you know, you can, in a sense, practically speaking, extend that 45-day window a little bit because you can you can start looking at engaging in replacement property contracts because you know your your buyer is solid and they're not going to have any contingencies bust the deal not going to be any due diligence issues or lender financing issues you know they're going to close on a certain date so then you can start feeling pretty comfortable about going out and getting into replacement property contracts yeah as long as those closing dates are past the relinquished property uh, closing date. So, you know, give or take a couple of weeks. And these timelines run the same no matter what kind of entity or lack thereof that you own the relinquished property in, right? Right. Yeah. The, so the, the entity, whether it's individual LLC or a tax partnership, that's all about, you know, implicating the same taxpayer requirement rules. Um, doesn't matter. Yeah. Day zero is day zero, no matter who the taxpayer is on the sales side. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up, Clint, because that's one question I have. Are there any entities that cannot do a 1031 exchange? I mean, like, you know, I own my land through an LLC. Clint may own his personally. Butch may own his in a partnership with his brother. Are there any entities that cannot do a 1031 exchange? I'll take a stab at that one. There really aren't. I mean, and they even apply. We've talked a lot about partnerships or LLCs. But, you know, you also see a lot of entities that, that are sub, sub S corporations or C corporations that also do exchanges. The only problem that you run into, you know, is when you've got members of those entities that want to go their separate ways. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that before we do, though. And, and this is kind of I mean, just to go back for a second, when we start getting into nuanced stuff like that, that's when it's really important to think about a team, a team approach. Because as Jonathan said, he, st he started out the timeline by talking about the taxpayer coming to us and saying, I want to do an exchange. We do a, an exchange agreement, et cetera. Well, a lot of times there's a lot of stuff that took, took place before that sale got negotiated and there was a signed purchase and sale agreement in place. And typically, you know, it's the taxpayer and a realtor, okay? Realtors are, you know, the front line on, on these types of deals because, they're involved a lot of times in a negotiation before an attorney gets involved for the taxpayer, if it's especially if it's a real complicated deal, or their CPA gets involved in it. I always uh, laugh a little bit because a lot of times taxpayers 
will go in and they'll talk to their friendly neighborhood banker long before they'll talk to their attorney or their CPA. The CPA usually finds out about the exchange transaction maybe in February or March, if they're lucky, 45 days or less before the taxpayer comes in to sign their tax return for the year in which they did the exchange. So one of the first questions we're going to ask the taxpayer when they come to us with regard to an exchange transaction, who's the realtor? Who's the bank? Who's your attorney? Who's your CPA? And that helps us get things off to to a good start because a lot of times if they've uh, been in negotiations, one example is just allocation of value. You know, there may be parts of a transaction, a sale transaction involved not only real property, but personal property that doesn't qualify for 1031 exchange treatment anymore. Pivot systems, uh, business fixtures, furnishings, et cetera. And, you know, if a taxpayer starts allocating value to that based upon pressure they're getting from their buyer, you know, and their buyer's advisors, they could basically be creating some taxable boot issues for them and not even realize it. And then you've got to go back in and try to try to save their bacon when they've gotten themselves kind of boxed into a corner where you've got a whole bunch of high value attributable personal property that's going to be taxable boot unless there's some things they can do to ameliorate the tax hit on the back end. So I just wanted to say that, you know, that it's it's basically a team approach. And when we get into situations involving those entities, that's when it gets really important because there's always going to be an accountant at least involved in a discussion about. If you've got a corporation or if you've got an LLC partnership and the the members of those entities want to go their separate ways when the property sells, there's going to have to be some discussion about how that's going to be accomplished because we talked about earlier the qualified use period. When you uh, acquire a property or you know when you do an exchange out of a property, you're basically representing that you've held the property for investment purposes or productive use in a trade or business. Well, if the taxpayers say in an LLC or if the members of an LLC decide that they're going to sell a property, but they want to each acquire their own replacement properties and their own individual exchanges, they don't have the luxury necessary necessarily of, you know, one day before the relinquished property sale closes, deeding the property out of the LLC to themselves as tenants in common as individuals, and then taking their share of the proceeds allocated them and doing their their own separate exchanges into separate replacement property. That's what's called a drop and swap that you mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, it's dropped out of the entity. And then each one of the former members of the entity do their own 1031 exchange. The problem with that is that there's an argument that the IRS has made that they didn't hold the property for investment purposes or productive use in a trade or business for anything more than just a day or a week or whatever the timeline was, the gap was. They held it for purposes of resale. And now that property doesn't, that property interest that they own doesn't qualify for 1031 treatment. So we end up having discussions with them about, okay, how how far in advance of the deal do you, if you're going to do a, a drop like that or distribution out of the entity, you know, how do you how do you structure that? How long ahead of the deal do you do it? Or do you have the partnership in that instance or the LLC? Go ahead with the exchange and then a, do what's called a drop. I mean, do a, a, a swap and then a drop. It is the entity does the exchange, acquires replacement properties that each of the members have identified as what they want to ultimately get. And then the partnership holds that property for a period of time. There's a special allocation that's done as between the partners so that they're each responsible for the profits and losses and operational costs on their respective target properties. And then the partnership spins it out after it's held it for a couple of years or at least a couple of tax reporting periods or whatever their CPA suggests they need to do to make sure that that deal is not challenged by the IRS. 
Well, I'm glad this isn't getting complicated. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm listening to uh, it, thinking about the swap and drop, Clint, you know, and that could really get hairy. You know, you, you, you swap into a big piece of hunting land and then all of a sudden I figure out that the piece you got is the best part of the land to hunt. And, and I want that one. And you want to keep it as you drop out. I don't know. It's just it's getting yeah. a little confusing. And I don't mean to confuse the issue, but I think it's really important for folks to at least have some indication of, you know, how things can get complicated, somewhat complicated. Certainly, you know, I've dealt with those types of issues in tens of thousands of exchanges over the years. And so, you know, there's there's usually always a way to to resolve the issue. But that it goes back to having a good team involved, realtors that know, you know, how to put the deals together in the first place. Good CPAs, you know, good other good tax advisors, good qualified intermediary company that's seen these types of situations, you know, before and knows how to react to them and get people steered in the right direction. So they get done the right way. It's cool. Yeah. So we've run into, I'm running this a lot, uh, you know, especially in group settings. Like, but we've got one come down the pipe now. It's an 8,000 acre deal with multiple owners. And, you know, some want to continue on, some don't. And we're, yeah. you know, the, the knee jerk reaction is we can't do it. We're going to have to disperse and, and everybody yeah. pay taxes. And it's good to hear that there's solutions for that without having to just eat it. But mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, clearly people need to call you guys directly on. But that's a great point, Clint. It's really a great point, you know. And jumping back, this is a question that we all get 99.99% of the time when you're talking to somebody about 1031 exchanges for the first kind, first time uh, is what in the world like kind means. And we touched on it at the beginning of the show, but so don't, I don't want you to, to start over again, but just to make sure I'm clear, you don't have to go farm to farm or timberland no. to timberland. It can be farm to condo, condo to farm, apartments, back and forth, as long as it's for investment purposes. You betcha. Exactly right. I mean, and it runs the gamut from, you know, storage units, uh, multifamily residential complexes, single family residential, as I indicated, conservation easements. Uh, can be sold uh, in, in a, and you can acquire any type of replacement property. Uh, I talked a little bit about paleontological and archaeological rights, you know, where a lot of times these entities will want to come in and they'll want to prospect for, you know, dinosaur bones or Indian artifacts and stuff on a, on private land and then have the ability and the taxpayer, the owner of the land has the ability to take any proceeds from that, the sale of that essentially mining right or excavation right or exploration right, and use that to parlay it into acquisition of other other replacement property, oil and gas rights, water rights, typically water rights in the state, and at least in the Western United States are a real property interest or viewed as real property interest. So you could sell water rights away from a piece of ground and use that money to go buy another piece of land. See, that's something I didn't know. That's yeah, awesome. timber rights is a big deal too. As long as they're structured, as long as those exchanges are structured properly, and it's not a sale of the timber cutting rights, but it's actually a sale of timber rights. That is the right to come in and and take a t- stand at timber and basically, you know, harvest it, but also, you know, take care of it, thin t- timber out you know, uh, do hazard reduction, do fire control and stuff like that over a long period of time. Uh, sale of uh, easements for cell towers, wind towers, you know, money that's derived from those sales of those easements or leases of pads for wind towers or or uh, or uh, cell, cell towers and that type of thing uh, are all, you know, capable of being used uh, for exchanges into other property. You can do a leasehold mm-hmm. exchange into fee simple. 
Yeah, as long as it as long as it's long, longer than a thirty year lease, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a thirty year lease on its terms on the on the initial terms. It could be a, a five year lease, but as long as there's automatic renewal provisions in that lease that allow the taxpayer, you know, that allow the owner of that of that leasehold interest to uh, to take it out longer than thirty years. Then it's viewed by the IRS as as like kind to to a fee ownership in real property. Oh wow, yeah. Well, uh, I thought I was about to tell a story about how I did something complicated, but now that one uh, adds a new wrinkle. Yeah, um, yeah I'll so, tell you what. I, I got I got a great thing. I, I need to develop a Southern accent when I'm talking to some of the folks down there because one of the things uh, I've always thought, man, I wish I had a Southern accent because I could tell stories. Then I can't start <laughs> to tell stories worth a darn. But you guys can read the wrapper off a roll of toilet paper and you get everybody laughing. You know, I like that. Uh, my wife's from the South Caribbean. You ought to hear her when she gets mad at me. <laughs> so last year I sold some apartments where well, this market was so crazy for apartments. And I had bought a farm that I didn't necessarily plan on buying, but had given my word that if the client wanted to sell it, I'd buy it. He, he exercised that right. And I, I just, I didn't know why or for what reason but i went ahead and threw it into a reverse at closing and i end up selling these apartments i didn't know i was going to sell i buy two properties forward and then reverse the balance into this farm when i couldn't find anything else and then i did a cost segregation analysis on at the end of the year before it started sunsetting and i thought my accountant was going to murder me between those <laughs> he's like you did what so it turned him into this forensic accountant uh for a month <laughs> But we, we've kind of bounced around reverses so far. Can you shed some light on the, how those work compared to the other two routes that we've already talked about? Yeah. First of all, let me, let me tell you, there's no such thing as a real true reverse exchange. There have been a couple of them that were, you know, that a reverse exchange took place and it was basically approved, but, but the court involved lost sight of the fact that the taxpayer really acquired the replacement property before they got their before they sold their relinquished property you know a lot of times when i'm talking about reverse reverse exchanges i use the term parking arrangement because that's essentially what it is the taxpayer cannot acquire replacement property before it sells its relinquished property so what we'll do in a situation like that, and there's any number of situations a lot of times the taxpayer as Jonathan alluded to earlier you know they they got and they knew they were selling their their relinquished property. They thought they had a buyer lined up. They go out and get a replacement property under contract because they're worried about the 45-day identification period and the timeline and everything. And they get up ready for closing on the sale of their relinquished property and their buyer backs out for any number of reasons, okay? And they've got their acquisition of the replacement property set up for closing the next week. So panic city strikes, you know? At that point in time, they're going to contact us and they're going to want to set up a parking arrangement or a reverse exchange. And so what we do in a situation like that is we form an entity. Typically, it's a, a sole member LLC. It's owned by our company. It's a subsidiary of our company. And they're typically set up so that there's just one for each deal. We don't use them over and over again for different deals. That entity is set up for that particular parking arrangement. And when that parking arrangement's completed, that entity is dissolved, it goes away. Unless the taxpayer acquires the sole membership interest in lieu of a deed, then, then they'll keep it alive, but they're going to keep it alive, not us. But in any event, that parking entity that then will take an assignment of the buy-sell agreement on the purchase property, on the replacement property, and step into the shoes of the taxpayer and end up acquiring that property and parking it until the taxpayer can get their relinquished property sold or go through whatever the hoops they have to go through. A lot of times it's not, you know, a blown 
closing on a relinquished property. It's just that uh, taxpayers be- didn't have anything yet. Yeah, because of low inventories or whatever, they see an opportunity to get a really mm-hmm. great piece of property. They don't want to wait for their relinquished property to sell. They they can't take that chance. So they jump on it. Mm-hmm. We end up acquiring the property, park it for them. They sell their relinquished property and do the exchange into that property we're parking for them. Typically, we've gone out you know, and, and acquired either in short-term parking arrangements, we have the luxury of borrowing the money directly from the taxpayer if the taxpayer's got the cash laying around, or they will have already been in touch with a lender. Lender will let us step into their shoes and, and we'll use loan funds to acquire that property. The exchange funds that come into the acquisition of the replacement property to close out the reverse exchange or parking arrangement are then used to pay off that loan, whether it's from the taxpayer or whether it's from a conventional lender. And the taxpayer now owns the property. They've got a completed exchange, property A for property B, never got the money, and they're off and running. To put that in the terms we typically experience is you've got somebody who sees something they love and want to buy before they've sold what they're going to sell, mm-hmm. but they don't want to you know, they can't put a contract on that piece or that property subject to the other because that seller won't let them or, or won't yep. accept that. So they go ahead and buy this, the one they want to end up with, either with cash or financing. And then they put theirs and they and they take title through the intermediary at closing. But it's finance or they pay cash, one of the two. And then they sell what they want to sell after that. Yes, sir. And then at closing, the proceeds from that, even if there is a capital gain, what I say in reverse back to what they've already bought and pay off that debt or cash themselves back out of it, you know, quote unquote, tax free. They get they get that that whatever form of structure they use to purchase it is, is either comes back to them or the or the mortgage is wiped out. That's essentially correct. Yeah, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we're going to be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of our sponsors. This segment was brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. MallardBay.com is the Airbnb-style marketplace for discovering and booking your next guided hunting and fishing adventures. The Mallard Bay platform was built by sportsmen for sportsmen. Their mission is to help expand access to affordable and successful hunting by connecting you with verified outfitters across the United States. You can browse trips and prices by state or species, select the dates you'd like to go, message outfitters, and secure your dates all from one platform, mallardbay.com. Not sure where you want to go yet? Reach out on Instagram or Facebook, and they can help you find your dream hunt. So let me ask you this, guys. Um, if we're talking about a reverse, uh, which you know what we tend to call it, what's that feel like? for the person who's doing it. Uh, because just looking at it, you know, apples to apples comparison to me, the reverse seems less stressful than a standard 1031 exchange in the sense that I've already found what I want. Now, all I have to do is sell my property as opposed to I've got my property under contract. Now I got to go find something that I want. And if I don't find something right amount of time, I've got to pay capital gains tax and all the mm-hmm. other taxes that Jonathan, you know, was was pointing out. Um, you know, is one better than the other? Why wouldn't you just always do a reverse? Well, I would say that great point. I mean, there, there and there are a lot of people that approach a reverse exchange or parking arrangement just like you do, Joe. That it 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 basically eliminates the, a lot of the stress as far as finding replacement property, especially in the last couple of years where inventories were so dramatically low. I mean, it was hard to find good replacement property. So when you found one, you needed to jump on it, even if you didn't have your relinquished property teed up for a a timely sale. 
the only thing that would be a, a cautionary note would be if the taxpayer doesn't have the cash readily available. You know, if they're going to be using loan funds, if they're going to be using bank money to acquire that property, there's always the possibility, you know, that they may have an inflated idea of what the value of their relinquished property is, or they may not be able to sell their relinquished property. Or they have to discount it if they do. You know, they're, they're going to be working off bank money for a while. And that's going to be the biggest cost. You know, our transaction fees are going to be substantially more too, you know, for a reverse exchange, because it's going to be added on to what we would normally charge for just a forward exchange portion of it. So you're probably looking at a range of anywhere from, you know, uh, 5,000 to 10,000 and up, depending upon the size of the park property, all the different issues associated with it, because construction, yeah, construction, to, if we're, especially if we're doing construction to suit on that, because the taxpayers not only want, want to buy the property, but there's some rehab that has to be done on it or complete new structures, et cetera. But in, even just in a situation where they're acquiring a business type property, you know, there's uh, property management companies that you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to get them teed up to take care of the property. And it's going to be the parking entity that's essentially doing that. It's at least the front person. Yeah, taxpayer is going to be boots on the ground to take care of some of that stuff, or at least to let the QI in a company know or the, the parking entity know, hey, we've got a problem here or there. We need to take care of this. But it's, And then and you get into ag properties. You're talking about forest service grazing permits, BLM grazing permits, state uh, grazing and, and farming uh, leases. Uh, you even have private leases in place on some of those deals. Water rights. Exactly. Water rights. A lot of times there's re-adjudication taking place in some states, you know, as far as the validity of water rights. And so the the parking entity is going to be involved in all aspects of that operations of those properties. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got property that's kind of management intensive stuff, and, it's, and and then if it's going to take be a long-term parking arrangement, we haven't even talked about those. We're talking about generally 180-day safe har- what we call safe harbor parking arrangements. You know, it, it it gets complicated, and that's that's the cost of the of the of the loan money of the loan funds and all those operational issues associated with it, um, and having to have a, the parking entity involved in that rather than the taxpayer just handling it like they normally would if they own the property. That's really the one, a couple of the issues that you might run into why a taxpayer would want to consider whether or not they want to do it. Well, you just but, hire, me, hire me or Clint, you don't have to worry about it. That's right. It's selling, yeah. it's selling you know, <laughs> taking too long. So Yeah, exactly. That's right. You guys have done a great job of simplifying this and doing a good job of explaining definitions. And I think one thing that me, I'm not a, I'm not an agent like these guys. I'm usually on the other side of it. I'm a landowner, I own rental houses, and we're always uh, moving and shaking on things like that. These things take a lot of time, especially right now. We're in a, you know, in a weird spot where inventory was really high and now inventory is kind of slowing down time. All of these seasons, they take time. It takes time to sell a house. It takes time to close. It takes time to find the property you want. I'm over here having a having a sweat attack, just thinking about all of these things lining up for the perfect timeline to make it beneficial for me as a seller. So I understand what you guys are saying about the exchange. The reverse definitely makes sense. How does it come together more times than not? Um, if that makes any sense, it seems very overwhelming to me not being an agent. You know, do you go to your agent first and say, this is what I want to do? Do you have to have all of your ducks in a row before you even start down this street? Butch, great question. Uh, because I'm sitting back on on the sidelines here or while Jonathan's talking or while I'm talking, I'm sure he's thinking the same thing. I mean, we, we don't want to end up making this too complicated for listeners. 
We don't want to scare them off. Definitely. We don't want them to think that this exchange process is too darn complicated to even take a shot at it. But I think in response to your question, you know, how do you maximize the timeline, the exchange timeline we talked about, the 45-day identification, the 180-day total exchange timeframe? And I think the the answer to that is that, um, and the reason why, you know, I can probably remember just about every exchange that didn't take place because the taxpayer ran out of time, out of tens of thousands of exchanges over the years. And I think a lot of it's just the fact that some of it goes to the fact that you've got a team involved, good people that are helping out the client, you know, to get them to where they want to be at the end of the, at the end of the process. And that, you know, when you have those good people with the collective wisdom that they have kind of united in one, in one forward motion, you know, for, on behalf of their client, things just happen. But the other thing I think is that people that are thinking about doing an exchange can be mindful of the fact that it may not be a problem for them to sell their relinquished property. But then again, it may. I mean, if they've got different things that come into play on that sale, like they've got to do some improvements on it in order to get it saleable, you know, they've got to engage a realtor. And I always tell people, hey, you know, don't ever think that you can do it if, you know, for sale by owner and think you're cutting a fat hog, you know, because you're not. Having knowledgeable realtors and other advisors involved in the process just makes it go so much more smoothly. And then the client, the taxpayer needs to be mindful of the fact that they do have that 45-day identification period that starts ticking, you know, when that relinquished property sale closes. If they can be out ahead of the game and they can be looking at replacement property a couple months out, you know, and adding on to that 45 days, uh, that they've got some things nailed down. And even in some situations, you know, where it's advantageous to do so, to get that replace, get replacement properties under contract and get their due diligence out of the way, or at least underway, so that they know when that relinquished property sale closes, uh, they're going to be ready to, to pull the trigger on the acquisition of that replacement property. And you'd be surprised the number of deals that we have where taxpayers actually acquire the replacement property before they even get to the 45-day identification deadline. So you, you do need to have your ducks in a row. And it sounds like what you were saying yeah. about that. You need a, it's a tribe. I mean, it's a lot of people working together yeah. to, towards a, a common goal. But it's, it's, def, it's definitely doable. And when you're considering it, there's no reason to get discouraged at the outset. You know, if you're if you're mindful of some of those potential hurdles you're going to run into and having people involved in the process that know their way around either over the hurdles, you know, or if there's a brick wall, they they find a door in their window in the brick wall, you know, to get you through it. Uh, Jonathan may have some thoughts about that, too. Well, to that end, I mean, I know, obviously, that you don't want to, you know, be at the last second, decide to do a 1031, although we deal with that all the time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's better to, to plan for that in advance and know where your finish line is. But what are some situations where, you know, you might advise somebody not to do an exchange? Good question. I cannot recount for you the number of times, first of all, that I've heard well-meaning accountants or CPAs say, well, you might as well just pay the tax because the tax rates are never going to get any lower than they are right now. But sometimes they're just looking at the federal rate. They're not taking into consideration, Clint, what I think you may have alluded to. That is, or Jonathan alluded to the fact that the tax rate and effective rate in California is 13.3, you know, roughly, I mean, almost as much as the lowest federal rate is. Uh, and then you've got the net investment income tax, or what I call the Obamacare surtax, a 3.8% yeah. on top of that, you know, that's still out there hanging around, you know, creating revenue for those programs. Uh, something we run into a lot is you've got people that have inherited land 
and they've got yeah. to step up in basis to to yeah. equal or greater than what the property sells for. They don't have a capital gain, but they don't realize that because they've not had a good team around them to tell yeah. them, oh, hey, you've mm-hmm. got to step up in basis. So you have no, you know, you have no tax liability here. So don't spend the time and effort going right. through the going through the process of a 1031 exchange because you don't need one. Exactly. You're one, of the, you're one of those lucky people. Yep, exactly. And it, we we get calls like that all the time. And when we start, as Jonathan said, one of the some of the first questions we ask on an on a on an initial call with a client or their advisors is, you know, you know, what's your basis? What's your basis in the property? We explain basis, you know, and their CPA is going to be able to give them a much better deci- uh, the picture of what their basis is and what their potential tax liability is going to be with without an exchange. But you'd be surprised at the number of times people have had a step up in basis and they didn't even know they got it because mom or dad passed away and uh, and left them with with this operation and there's going to be a negligible amount of tax on it. Or you know they may have some net operating loss carry forwards that they can use to deduct or to offset any capital gain tax on the sale or some other uh, benefits. You I think you you're aware of what cost segregation is. They may be able to acquire a property that has some cost segregation opportunities and some immediate expensing opportunities, which creates more deductions that they could use to offset the capital gain tax on the sale of the relinquished property. You know I I've see situations too where Sometimes, you know, the, the amount of the transaction, if it's like a two, understand that I've done exchanges all the way from 30,000 bucks, always felt that the taxpayer could pay the transaction fee and still ends up coming out with additional money they can roll into the replacement property. They're probably going to come back to me a year or two later and they're going to have a $300,000 property or sometime 10 years out, they might have a $3 million property. But at the same time, there may be situations where it's just not a, enough money involved in the transaction to really make any good economic sense for the taxpayer. All they're going to do is run around with their hair on fire because they don't understand the process or they're concerned about it. And I'd be the first one to tell them, hey, you know, maybe here's some other things you, you maybe need to consider. Here, let's let's talk to Why don't you talk to your CPA and see if you don't have some some things that you could use to offset the cap gains tax and uh, and make your life a lot more simple. We've talked about the team aspect and on the consulting and advice side, which is invaluable. But from the logistics side of things, can you elaborate on a little bit of like what the what the role of a of a intermediary is from a separation standpoint, from as far as the funds and the related parties to the transaction, how that works? Yeah, Clint. I also wanted to kind of just I've been sitting over here thinking about this the whole time of like this how we're in this condensed timeline and we're trying to simplify it and can I get something identified in this 45 days? You know, Max and I are very cognizant too of saying, look, you know, if, if you're not exchanging your basis or greater, then this this transaction isn't going to probably pencil out. And that's why we go through the economics of it to make sure that the fees, you know, are are way less than the amount of the deferral. But right. you know, when you're looking at these timelines, I always couch the concept of an exchange is that you're taking an option to defer because you're just charged the leg of the transaction. So you're charged that first leg saying at the relinquished property closing. So why not throw, you know, that that first fee, that option in there and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a go. Rather than taking the tax hit, I'm gonna take an option contract on this deferral and see if I can find a replacement property. Maybe I can, maybe I can't. But I can't tell you the number of times that people have reached out, they've decided not to do the exchange and they've called me and like, hey, can you unravel this for me? Can we go back and reclose this and open up an exchange? And so it's, it's kind of, that's one way of couching a, you know, a frame of reference for looking at an exchange. And another way too is, is this concept of, you know, if you are with the taxes involved, 
there's a lot of downside protection there, you know, as you're buying back into the, to the real estate market. Um, you know, if you're looking at 28% or 25% or 30%, whatever it may be, if you're reinvesting those funds, then, you know, you're, you're protected to the downside because you've deferred the, that amount of taxes. So it's kind of uh, different ways of framing, uh, looking at an exchange transaction, but it's certainly something to consider when you're really looking at the overall picture and it can get a little bit confusing. Just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to try and take the option, see if I can do it, see if I can meet the timelines. If not, I would have had to pay the tax anyway. The way I look at it is if I, if my tax liability was going to be, let's say, average out at 30%, uh, mm-hmm. across the board, then that deferral for the lifetime of that investment, my, that just made my dollar go 30% further on the front end. So that's extra return, you know, just compounding at that equitable rate throughout the life of that investment, you know, other than just handing it to Uncle Sam and say, I hope you do something productive with it. <laughs> well, and Clint, you know, exactly. further further to what you're saying too, my maybe my mindset is always, you know, saving money instead of making money. You know, what you just said is I'm going to get my dollar to go 30% further right at the outset. And my mindset on that is I can mess up 30%. You know, like if I go out and <laughs> And I'm trying to, you know, get a property within this 180 and I buy something and maybe I overspend a little bit. I mean, I'm probably not going to overspend 30%. Yeah, you got a little cushion there. Yeah, you got, you've got some ability to take some risks to your point, Jonathan, like, you know, you can try it. And if it doesn't work out, it's not something There's no penalty, right? You don't get put in jail, right? For Mm -hmm. for doing this. And then. Same result. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you make it and you buy a property for. You know, anything less than 30% over what you should have paid, you, you're you still ahead. It's interesting the number of times that I've heard people say, well, you know, I tax rates are never going to get any lower than they are right now. I think I'm just going to pay the tax. And I, the interest rates aren't bad right now. If I put it into into CDs or something like that, I'm getting a, what, uh, 150 basis points, yeah. 2.5%. And even now, I mean, the interest rates are pretty darn good, you know? But I tell them, you know, you're never going to make up for the money you would have made on the amount you paid in taxes to Clint's point, you know, you're yeah. never going to make that up. No matter how good the interest rates, you're never going to re- recoup that. Well, and and kind of tying all that together with Clint's question about, you know, do you ever advise people not to do a 1031? Jonathan, I'm going to go back to what you were saying. Yeah. You know, like if the savings aren't going to warrant the cost of the exchange, then mm-hmm. that would be a reason not to do one, right? Because you could just pay it and Go, or, mm-hmm. go your separate ways. So how much does a 1031 exchange typically cost? That's a $64,000 question. <laughs> but to, to that, you know, I would also say, you know, it's going to vary. But yeah. typically, I mean, in, in our situation, we'll end up charging a, a fee up front for the first relinquished property sale. Okay. So the taxpayer is not going to end up having the additional fees unless they do acquire replacement property. And then we'd have an additional fee for each replacement property acquired. And, you know, there's a lot of times there's wire transfer fees, you know, because moving the money around for the closings and stuff and having it available, uh, an administrative cost that most QIs would want to recoup. But I would say uh, you're probably, Jonathan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're probably looking for a regular forward exchange transaction. You're probably looking at a range of maybe 750 to 2500 and, and that would be for a, on the top end that would be a fairly sizable transaction in the millions of dollars yeah with complexities that you mm-hmm. know you Complex- some yeah. of the complexities you've you've talked about well i'll tell you what mm-hmm. I, I, one thing i've learned from this show is that there are a lot of complexities there can be a lot of complexities 
you know, when we first started talking out, it was all about saving money, you know, avoiding capital gains tax. But really what I've learned is that you're avoiding a lot of other types of taxes too. It's not just capital gains. And and for all the reasons we've talked about, this could be a huge, have a huge impact on your overall uh, wealth building if you're if you're able to use a 1031 and keep that going forward. That being said, like probably a lot of our shows, I think we've probably raised a lot of questions and people are going, what about me? What about my situation? I kind of wish I, I wish they'd ask this or that. If folks want to reach out to you guys and get their ducks in a row, we talk about this a lot uh, when it comes to financing, and that's to get your things together so that when you find that perfect property, you know what you're going to do. So if they want to talk to you guys, get their ducks in a row, ask the questions about their specific situation, how they own the property, where they're trying to, to go. What's the best way for them to reach out, get more information? Should they go to your website? Do you have more resources there? Re- pick up a phone and give you guys a call. Where do you send folks? So yeah, we have a website, www.accruit.com. It's that's A-C-C-R-U-I-T.com. And on that site, you've got About Us where it talks about, uh, you know, Max and I will be on there. And then it'll also have uh, an 800 number you can call in on. You can get on live chat, but there's also a resources library. And if you go into that library, it's going to have articles written by all the staff attorneys, Max and I, in particular, that talks about a lot of these questions. And so you can research that. You can plug in something into the search and say, hey, I want to find something in particular. Or you can just call us directly and say, hey, I want to schedule a call with Max and Jonathan. I got a a deal. And and that's what we do all day long. Like Max said, we'll, we'll advise on a you know, a $300,000 exchange and we'll advise on a $20 million exchange. It doesn't matter. We just want to make sure it makes financial sense for you and you understand the rules of the exchange and, and, and what's implicated and we'll make it as simple as possible. But um, yeah, we're more than happy. It's what we enjoy to do, you know, as far as educating uh, all day long. And as part of being on this podcast, you know, it's just spreading the word and, and kind of clearing the air on what a 1031 is and, and really sharing the knowledge as far as how valuable a tool it is for building generational wealth. And so we've got a plethora of resources and more than happy to share them. I always tell people too, uh, Joe, that, you know, hopefully when we get involved in the process, we're able to we're able to simplify it as much as possible, eliminate a lot of the questions that taxpayers have that are causing a lot of anxiety on their part. When they get answers to those questions, you know, that anxiety tends to diminish. And I was tell told people, you know, our job is really to draw a good roadmap for an IRS agent to show that the taxpayer client, you know, ended up swapping property A for property B and they never got the money. And that's, you can get all kinds of other issues involved in the deal, but in almost all of the transactions, it distills down to that, that simple process. You can eliminate a lot of that other, uh, other stuff. And, uh, you know, that's our job. We, we, that's what we love doing. Every one of these deals, every one of these deals is different, but, but they're a lot of fun because of the people, you know, whether it's the realtors, the advisors, the clients themselves, it's been a real joy for me to be doing these things for over 40 years now. I've met some great folks. Well, guys, I, I love the team approach. Uh, it sounds like there isn't a curveball that's going to get thrown that somebody over there doesn't know how to hit. So uh, we appreciate you guys joining us today, really getting us educated and answering some of our questions. And uh, uh, we just really appreciate you guys joining us. Yeah, well, if we can't hit the ball, we'll get the shotgun out and really give it a shot. <laughs> that's right. Let's <laughs> figure something out. <laughs> Thanks for having us, fellas. Enjoy it, guys. Thanks. All right, folks, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to wrap this thing up. Y'all take a minute and check out some of our show sponsors. 
This segment was brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. At BucksIsland.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider-style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats, and they can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also by Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida has over a century of experience providing financing for people who live, work, or play in the country. Farm Credit is here to help you make your dream of country living a reality. Their unique cooperative structure allows them to return some of their profits back to their borrowers. This patronage distribution effectively lowers a borrower's rate. To get started with your first or next land purchase, give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL or visit them at www.gorural.net. Well, Butch, I want to start with you. You know, doing a 1031, if you've never done one, can seem pretty over overwhelming. And, you know, sure. talking about everything we talked about here today, you can see there's there's complexities, potentially. A lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. What would you take away from this as someone who you know hasn't dealt with this as, as much as Clint and I have? What do you take away from this discussion today? People do what they do for a living for a reason, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. You know, we do what we do because we're good at it. And people, you guys do what you do because you're good at it. And these guys have a team of people that are good at what they do and they and they get paid to do it. And there's a reason why that. It's very complex. They have a team. They have the resources to get it done the way it's supposed to be done for the end consumer. Yeah. I'll echo that because, you know, Clint, we talk about it a lot, mentioned it earlier having your financing predetermined, you know where you're going to go for it, you know what you're going to, how much you can afford. You've got all that stuff in order before you ever make an offer on a property. Before you ever even find that property, you're going to be, you know, at a much greater advantage to someone who does not. And when you start thinking about the complexities that can be involved with financing, and then you think about the complexities that could be involved with a 1031 exchange, I like that they've got the collective wisdom over there to crew it to say, you know, if Max hadn't dealt with that before, Jonathan has. And, you know, we kind of have been able to do the same thing at National Land. You know, we've got really a teamwork approach to land brokerage where, you know, if I call you and I say, Clint, I'm, I'm dealing with this situation, I, I haven't encountered this yet. Maybe you have, and you can advise me, but maybe you haven't, and maybe you need to call a broker from Nebraska, you know, to deal with that problem. And you don't want to have just one person working for you when you're dealing with things that are complex. You want a team behind you. You want people that are good at their individual roles, really helping you see around corners and when you've got multiple balls moving forward, you got a person pushing each one of them. Well, especially um, whenever you're talking about your pocketbook. I mean, that's pretty important whenever you're talking about your pocketbook and uh, possibly acquiring some more land to hunt on, as we always like to do. Yeah. Clint, you, you talked about, you know, the amount of money you can save, but really you were looking at it as the amount you're going to be able to spend forward. Yeah. You know. That's more widgets I can buy. Yeah, uh, I like your analogy. We were talking off air and, and you know, you, you know, we were kind of talking about compounding and how much money this can really 
earn for you and how much wealth this is can really create for you over a lifetime of doing this. But I really liked your analogy in breaking it down into acres. Yeah. In that last example we used, that's 30% more acres I can buy or 30% more rentable square foot if I'm going that route. All of that stuff. And that's that's those acres or those square feet are pushing off more value to me in whatever way I'm finding value in that investment, whether it be income, recreation, combination of the both, tax shelter, conservation easements, cost segregation, all of those things are the results of those things are amplified by having 30% more of that asset type. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Butch, back to what you were saying, there's, it seems overwhelming and a lot of people just throw in the towel. You know, they're like, ah, I don't know. It just seems really complicated. I don't want to worth it. I don't want to risk the IRS breathing down my neck. And, you know, they just, I'm going to just pay the taxes and just, you know, be done with it because that's the, can be the easy thing to do. You know, if you're thinking about selling your property, you, you owe it to yourself to reach out to the guys that accrue it and just talk to them. You, you can't do yourself any harm by giving it a shot. If you miss the timelines or whatever it may be, you're right back where you started. Yeah, no big you get deal. your money back and you're out of whatever they said, a very reasonable fee in 45 days. You know, yep. no biggie, but at least you tried. Yep. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Hunt Land Show is brought to you by Fatatis Defense. The Fatatis Defense PD Pro Ultra Light, Ultra Compact Night Vision Systems. Simply the best in class night vision systems ever built. Contact fatatisdefense.com to learn more. Fatatis Defense masters of darkness and also alabama farmers co-op alabama farmers cooperative has been serving gardeners farmers and everyone in between for 85 years visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co-op near you and also great days outdoors the south's finest hunting and fishing magazine pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com and also the Hunter's Bait Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. The Lowdown High Speed Trail Cam Viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical seven inch viewers. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also by Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida has over a century of experience providing financing for people who live, work, or play in the country. Farm Credit is here to help you make your dream of country living a reality. Their unique cooperative structure allows them to return some of their profits back to their borrowers. This patronage distribution effectively lowers a borrower's rate. To get started with your first or next land purchase, give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL or visit them at www.gorural.net.